Our scripture is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For water, waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the hunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I, I want to um, apologize because I think I might just cry a little bit, which is going to make a long sermon even longer. Um, in 1964, um, during the South African apartheid, uh, Nelson Mandela was imprisoned in a tiny little cell, two meters by two meters, on Robben Island. And in his autobiography, he says that um, of all the um, like horrible difficulties he faced in that place, like just terrible forced manual labor, like having to use a bucket uh, as a toilet day after day, he said the most agonizing thing was the view. Robin Island is just seven kilometers off the coast of Cape Town, which was Mandela's home, and that island offered one of the most um, spectacular views of that beautiful city, but there was no way to reach it. There was no way to get there, which would be bad, but not too bad if Mandela had to stay there for like a weekend or even a week, or even two weeks, would say, bad, but not, not so bad. But he lived in that cell on Robben Island for 18 years. 18 years of his 27-year-long imprisonment was spent on that island, living with a vision of the freedom he longed for, but without any ability to possess it. Uh, 18 years of looking out across the water and seeing like this home that he loved, um, but just having no way of getting there. 18 years of longing. 
Frederick Buechner tells us that the word longing comes from the same root as the word long in the sense of length in either time or space and also the word belong so that in its full richness to long suggests to yearn for a long time for something that is a long way off and something that we feel we belong to and that belongs to us. The longing for home is so universal a form of longing that there is even a special word for it. And what is that word? Longing for home. Homesickness. Homesickness. And isn't that right? I mean, uh, aren't so many of our deepest longings, when we boil them down to their essence, really about this, like this, this deep longing we have in us for a home? Um, a desire to belong, to really belong to a place and a people where there is security and love and community and trust. I know from many conversations with him that beneath the challenge of the cancer itself, part of what made the last three years so hard for Alex um, was that the sickness forced him to live for long stretches of time away from his home. He spent so much time in hospitals and in hospital beds and um, so much time away from Crystal and Charlotte and Violet and they could visit and they could FaceTime, uh, but even this highlighted the tension that Alex was living in, like this gap between the way things were and the way we all knew things should be, the way things are supposed to be. Like they, they just highlighted the ocean between his Robin Island and his home. And always the question, like, will there be a way back? Um, like, will there be a way home? And, and we prayed and we prayed that God would heal him and that God would end his exile. In our passage, the prophet Isaiah sees God's people living uh, with an unbearable homesickness. Remember some of the history. Uh, in about 975 BC, Israel was divided into the northern kingdom and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was known as Israel. The southern was known as Judah. Israel had 10 of the 12 tribes, and Judah only had two, Judah and Benjamin. And then in 721 BC, uh, the Assyrians ca came in and they captured the northern kingdom and they took those tribes away and we just don't know what happened to them. They're like lost to history. Around 586 BC, somewhere around there, the Babylonians come in and they capture Jerusalem. This is now the capital city of the south, southern kingdom, and they take what remains of God's people into exile. And then a lot of Israel's story just becomes a wrestling with this question of like, how did we end up here? And is there any hope? Is there any way of getting home? Well, the Babylonian exile didn't last forever. Eventually, God's people, you remember, they were allowed to return to their homeland. And they were allowed to rebuild Jerusalem. But what did they find? Um, they found actually that things weren't all that different than they were during exile. 
and before the exile. I mean, they still face like external threats, external enemies. They still face the same tendencies within themselves toward injustice and idolatry. And so what God's people came to understand and see over time was that even though their exile was over, that in like this deep way, their exile was ongoing. Um, they weren't technically, I mean, they were technically back in the promised land, but their experience, even back in their homeland, even home was an experience of like wandering around in the desert. It's like maybe they were home without really being home. And I wonder if you can relate to that. Being home, but also being like desperately homesick. Every year in this season, families and friends make plans to come together around tables. And so we, we've just celebrated Thanksgiving and we're looking forward to celebrating Christmas. And we do this, I think, at least in part to um, create the experience of home for which we're longing. Right? We plan and we prepare and we decorate and we make like the best food that we can possibly make. And we hope for an experience of lasting joy some lasting sense of belonging. And, and these times together can be really wonderful, and they can also be um, these painful reminders of relational brokenness and heartbreaking loss. But even the best of our gatherings fall short if for no other reason that, than that they're so fleeting. I mean, we finish the celebrating, and even if it was really, really good, doesn't it always leave us wanting more? Like, it, it just doesn't deliver the lasting experience of, of home that we yearn for, that we long for. Like, we, the belonging, the joy, it, it dissipates and it fades. It's like we can be home without really being home. C.S. Lewis picks up on this theme in one of my favorite essays of his called The Weight of Glory. He talks about this deep longing that we have, and then he, he writes this, quote, It's tempting to identify the thing for which we long with certain moments in our past. And, and don't we do that? We think, gosh, if we could just get back to like this moment, like that's when everything was right. But then here's what he says. But if we could go back to those moments, we would not find the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What we remember would turn out to be itself a remembering. The experience in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust it. It was not in those experiences. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. Like you go back and, and you just find more longing, more longing. It's like longing beneath longing. And then later he says this, our lifelong nostalgia, or we might say our homesickness, our lifelong homesickness, our longing to be reunited with something or someone in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door from which we have always seen from the outside is actually the truest index of our real situation. The truest index of our real situation. And what is it? Like, why is it that we can feel homesick even when we're at home? What C.S. Lewis is getting at, and I think he's right, is that um, the reason that can be is that uh, because beneath our being home, there's a deeper reality of exile. 
like beneath all of our best experiences of community and joy and belonging, there's like this bedrock exile. Even when we're home, we're not home. Well, in fact, this is what the Bible story tells us from its opening pages. You remember that in the beginning, humanity lives in a garden. And God dwells with them there. Eden is their home. And that lasts for what? Like a few glorious paragraphs. But humanity stops relying on God's grace and they distrust his love. And as a result, they lose their home. They go into exile. And we might think, well, uh, why not just turn around and go back? <laughs> why not just go back home? It's a good question. The thing is, we do try. We do try. We try all the time. It's like we try over and over again. We try in big national ways, like maybe we'll be able to create a real home by some strategy of our own, maybe a strategy of engagement, enacting this political vision or that one, getting this guy elected or that one. Or, or maybe we pursue a different strategy, not of engagement, but withdrawal by retreating from the world into little Christian ghettos. And we think maybe this will create, maybe this will get us back. Maybe this will get us the home that we long for. Um, but inevitably, in one way or another, these big home-building projects end up being exclusive and unjust. They end up leaving out the very people God wants to bring close. It's like all of our large-scale utopian visions for creating a home, they just fail. And, and you see these, these home-building projects over and over again through human history, big ones, and they just fail. Well, our smaller scale efforts to create a home are also always so far from perfect. I mean, think about the homes that you've had. My guess is even if they were really, really good, they could have been a whole lot better. And some of them weren't good at all, when we're honest. I mean, our homes can be places of welcome and hospitality, but they can also be places where we hide um, they can be places of peace and, peace and rest, but they can also be places of like profound, unending conflict. They can be places that bring great healing into our lives, but also places that bring great harm. Um, homes can be places of light, but also some of our homes have been places of unspeakable darkness. It's like all our best attempts at homemaking fall short. All of our attempts to get back to the garden fail. Genesis gives us a clue as to why this might be. There's an interesting detail in chapter 3. It's been so long since we've looked at this passage in depth together, but you might remember that as humanity is leaving Eden, heading east, they, they look back, and do you remember what they see? They see a flaming sword. I heard it over here somewhere. They see a flaming sword. Um, and, and it's it, the Bible says that it's going back every back and forth every which way, and it's guarding the way back into Eden. And I don't know, it's like a lightsaber before there were lightsabers. I picture a giant lightsaber. But but you wonder like why why that? Why a flaming sword guarding the way? Like why not like a big wall or or a gate? Or a moat, or, or why not just a door and you have to know the secret knock? 
You just walk up to the door and you do your, you knock, you knock out your paradiddle and uh, you get in. All the drummers get in. Why not that? <laughs> well, um, in the Bible, fire, flame, so often, I mean, I, I want to say almost always, but I'm sure Sophie, and by the way, Sophie, oh, it's so good to have you back. <laughs> Sophie would correct me if I said always, but fire and flame so often um, symbolizes the presence of God. And swords in the Bible so often signify the justice and judgment of God. And so between us and home is like this fiery sword of God's justice and God's judgment. And Adam and Eve look back and they see it and they say, no thanks. And they just keep going east. And this exile, this life east of Eden, um, it's just the human condition from like chapter 3 onward. It's a condition that continues right up to our present moment. The New Testament addresses us as strangers and as exiles, as people whose citizenship is not here, but in heaven. And it says that we live here, but we live here always looking for a better country, like a better home, a better world. And so we can be homesick at home because even when we're home, we're not home. We live in exile east of Eden. Is there any hope for exiles? Is there hope for people like us who, in Beekner's words, yearn for a long time for something that is a long way off and something that we feel, belo- we, feel we belong to and that belongs to us, but who don't have any ability to get there? Like, is there, is there any cure, any real lasting cure for our homesickness? And I'm sure that he wouldn't mind me sharing this with you, um, but this is a question that Alex was wrestling with, like, really explicitly while he was still lucid. Um, like, he was so acutely aware of the gap between God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises. Um, He was longing for God to come close and to reveal himself, and he just didn't feel like God was. Um, He was longing not just to know about God's grace, but to experience God's grace. And all he felt was a dryness. like, Like he wanted the glory of Lebanon, but he just got the wilderness. Like he wanted springs to gush forth. And instead, it was just desert. Look at our passage again. What is Isaiah doing? He's coming alongside people who are in exile, and and he's giving us a vision of home. Um, He's teaching us how to hope. He's painting a picture of our present reality, and then he's giving us like this vision of what's to come. And so the present reality, wilderness, dry land, desert, he contrasts this with like the richest, most verdant and fertile areas known to ancient Israel, Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, these places that are just known for their, their lushness, their, their, their verdant um, trees and, and their riches. The glory hinted at by those places will come to God's people as a gift, Isaiah says, and it will be none other than the glory of God. So Isaiah reminds us that 
that our present reality is it's dry, it's a desert, but our future reality is just streams in the desert. Um, he reminds us that our present reality in exile is one of weakness and feebleness and anxiety and fear. And we look around and we think about what we've gone through as a church community this past week with like surgeries and Alex's death and um, people who just seem to be withering. We see like there is weakness, isn't there? And there is feebleness, and there's so much to be anxious about and so much to fear. But Isaiah speaks into that, and he issues a call to take heart and to fear not. Why? He says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. In other words, fear not, because Advent Well, family, remember how God has come to us. He comes to us as one of us. He comes to us as Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we behold Jesus doing the exact things that Isaiah said he would do. In Luke, you remember John the Baptist is desperate to know whether or not Jesus is the one who is to come. And actually, gosh, that, go home and read that passage. Um, because here you have John the Baptist who is withering away in a prison cell. That's embarrassing. You, you have John the Baptist withering away in a, in a prison cell, and, and remember that he doesn't get out, that he is, in fact, beheaded. And you have him cry, like sending messengers, crying out to Jesus, like, have I been wrong to put my hope in you? Has all of my hope been displaced, misplaced? Or are you the one to come? Are you the one, are you the one to bring the fullness of what God has promised? And, and, and Jesus says to the messengers, he says, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And he's taking all of this language right out of our passage. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Like Jesus says, I'm doing the very things Isaiah said I would do. You might wonder, what about the vengeance? Behold, your God will come with vengeance. In the abstract, the way that Isaiah puts it there might sound like a threat. We might not like the idea of God coming in vengeance. But look at the context. Um, God coming in vengeance here is not a reason to fear, is it? It's precisely a reason not to fear. You see that? Be strong. Fear not. Why not? Behold, your God is coming in vengeance. Um, why wouldn't we fear that? Because the vengeance is aimed at our salvation. You know, one of the things a broken and sinful world most desperately needs is the perfectly just judgment of God. There is evil out there, and there is evil in here, in here that needs to be dealt with. There are forces that blind and deafen and cripple us that need to be dealt with once and for all. And how does God do it? He does it by becoming one of us and by putting himself in our shoes, in Adam's shoes, and doing what Adam failed to do and what none of us dared to do. 
he looks back and he sees that flaming sword going every which way. God's perfect judgment and justice. And instead of fleeing from it, east of Eden, he faces it. And he moves toward it. And he submits himself to it. He says, I will be the one who brings vengeance by bearing it on myself. Do you see it, family? I mean, behold, your God will come with vengeance, but this is a vengeance designed for our salvation. It's a vengeance that opens the way for us to go home. When people we love die, we sometimes say that they've gone home. Like going home just becomes a euphemism for death. Because we don't like thinking about people dying. So we say, they've gone home. I think it's more than a euphemism. It's getting at something that, according to the Christian story, is profoundly true. And, and Crystal bore witness to this in her last update about Alex. After he had died, she wrote this. One of the few but blindingly bright moments in all of this is knowing without a doubt that he is in the arms of his heavenly father. Knowing that Alex knew where he was headed and that we get to see him again is a hope and glory and promise the girls and I are clinging to. And family, we can just say yes and amen to this. Um, this is, this is a truth that the Apostle Paul also bears witness to um, without giving us nearly as much detail as we might like, but, but he does suggest that when we die in Christ, we are somehow present to him and home with God. And, and I wish that Paul had given us more detail. I like how the Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama imagines it. He he says, he imagines Jesus receiving us when we die, and he, and he writes this, looking into our eyes and heart, Jesus will say, you've had a difficult journey. You must be tired and dirty. Let me wash your feet. The banquet's ready. I like imagining Jesus saying that to Alex. You've had a difficult journey. You must be tired. And, and those of us who saw Alex in the last weeks of his death know that he was tired. He was so tired. However it happens, um, the truth of that comforts me that Alex is... Um, He's no longer like trapped in a hospital bed with tubes and wires and hoses going in and out of his body, but that he is held by the love of God. And what's true for Alex now will be true for us one day, that like in Christ, um, our deaths will be a kind of home going. But there's so much more to the story the Bible tells. 
we've been asking the question, how can we go home? And, and when we ask that question to each other now, we immediately think that we have to do like, to jump on a plane maybe, or we have to take a road trip, or we have to make some kind of journey, like at least we gotta get out of the hospital, like to get home. Like instinctively, we think that to get home, we have to leave where we are now. But the Bible's main movement is actually in the other direction. Not souls escaping up to heaven to go somewhere else, but God coming here and bringing heaven with him. It's like, according to the Bible's story, we're not the only ones who are homesick. We're not the only ones, maybe, who are exiled. And so Isaiah gives us this vision of a highway, and he gives us a vision of what he calls the way of holiness. And it's a way home, but the thing to see family, is that this is, as much as it's our way home to God, it's God's way home to us. I mean, in Isaiah chapter 40, we learn that it's the way of the Lord. It's the highway of our God. Think about the story. Ever since the garden, a separation, there's been this separation between heaven and earth and between God's space and our space, and we're not happy about this. Um, but what the Bible shows us is that God's not happy about it either. And we're looking for a home, and God's looking for a home too. And so we read that one day when the fullness of time had come, the word became flesh, and what? Yeah, and, and that just means that the word made his home among us. And since our homes are so often not homes, not really, not real homes, the word joined us in exile. And Jesus became like the ultimate exile. And so we read that he's a son of man who has no place to lay his head. We're in exile and maybe God is in exile. God is looking for a home. And so Isaiah sees this highway in the desert. It's the way that God will come to us. And we can remember Jesus saying, I am that way. I am the way and the truth and the life. And we can remember him saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not just a home going, uh, it's a home coming. It's not an escape from this world, it's like, it's the transformation of this world. I mean, notice that in Isaiah's vision, the highway, I mean, it kind of does lead out of the desert back to Zion. I mean, that's part of the imagery, but it's not like, it's not that we're, it's not that the point is to leave the desert and get to a city because we see that the desert itself is being transformed. Um, it breaks forth and blossoms and it rejoices and waters break forth in the wilderness and the, the glory of Lebanon comes not to the city of Zion, but the glory of Lebanon comes to the desert wasteland as a gift. And you remember that when we get to the end of the story, what do we see? With the seer John, we behold the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And with John, we hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, remember what the voice says, Behold, the home of God is with man. God will make his home with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. So in the end, the exiled God 
will be home and we will be at home with him. Isaiah tells us that in the face of God's great homecoming, sorrow and sighing will flee away. In Revelation, we read that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. One day, family, God will come home and we will be home and there will be everlasting joy. But this is Advent. And I don't know about you, but for me this week, I mean, uh, Advent has been a time for weeping. And I think that there's just something right about that and that we just need to say, this is what we need right now. It's like right to cry and weep. Um, it's right for people who are homesick to cry out for their home. Rich Mullins has a great line about that. He says, if I weep, let it be as a man who is crying for his home. As we weep, we can remember that we never weep alone. Nicholas Walterstorff reminds us that instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. And I love that. There's so many temptations when we suffer, and especially when we lose someone we love, to like come up with explanations. And God never does that. He never explains suffering. He just shares it with us. Walter Storff writes this, God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is splendor. See, we weep and God weeps and one day God will wipe away our tears and wipe away every tear, including maybe his own. Advent is a time for weeping and it's also a time when we wait for the one who has come to come again. But I've, I've been trying to remind us each week that it's not a passive waiting. Um, it would be a shame to waste a good exile. It would be a shame to waste a good exile. Nelson Mandela spent 18 years on Robben Island. 27 years in prison. 18 years seeing his home seven kilometers away and having no way to get there. 18 years wasted? No. No. I mean, um, he began to befriend other prisoners and, and even some of the guards. And one of the things that he did was he planted a garden, and this garden became like this little source of life and beauty and joy and delight, not just for himself, but also for the others who were on the island with him, guards and prisoners together who benefited from its beauty and the produce of it. Here's how Mandela explained why the garden was so meaningful. He, said, he wrote this, to plant a seed, watch it grow, to tend it and then harvest it, 
offered a simple but enduring satisfaction. The sense of being the custodian of this small patch of earth offered a small taste of freedom. So there was no way for him to get home, and there was no way for him to entirely, completely transform Robin Island into his home. But right there in his place of exile on Robin Island, Mandela was able to put up just a kind of signpost, just a pointer, a pointer to the home that he trusted was waiting for him. He cultivated a small patch of earth so that it reflected like something of the beauty and order and abundance of the home that his soul was longing for. And I wonder, family, what gardens is the Lord calling us to cultivate in exile? What gardens is he calling us to cultivate while we wait? What kinds of foretastes can we give to our neighborhoods and city and world of, of this great homecoming that awaits us all? There's a place in John's gospel where Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I like reading that promise in light of Isaiah's vision of streams in the desert, um, water in the wilderness. I, I see it as, a, as an invitation for us um, to again put our trust in Jesus. Even if we're in a situation that, is, that maybe feels like a John the Baptist kind of situation, it's like, can we trust you? Are you trustworthy? Are you the one to come? There's an invitation here to put our trust in Jesus, to abide in him, which is another way of saying what? To make our home in him, to practice walking in the way of Jesus, the way of holiness, as Isaiah calls it, to keep in step with the Spirit, because all of this is the Spirit's good work in our life. And what happens when we do this, when we trust in Jesus and abide in him and keep in step with the Spirit and practice his way and walk in his way? Well, streams in the desert, bubbling up in, in us for others. We become signs that point the way home. And so, family, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees and say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God comes in vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. In other words, he'll come home. He'll come home. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen.